Hi, everybody. Welcome to Curly Girlies Cracking the Kid Code with Atara and Grace. I am Atara Tversky, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com, spelled with two E's at the end of curly and two E's at the end of girly. And I am here with my amazing co-host, Grace Cross. Hi, Grace. Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm Grace Cross. I'm the owner of The Baby Spot, the only global parenting magazine. And we are so excited to welcome an innovator and change maker in his field, Dr. Ross Green. Dr. Green is a clinical psychologist who was on the Harvard Medical Faculty for over 20 years and is currently a professor at Virginia Tech. Dr. Green is the originator of the evidence-based approach called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, also known as CPS. Dr. Green is the author of many influential books, including The Explosive Child, Lost at School, Raising Human Beings, and Lost at Found. He's the founding director of a powerful nonprofit called Lives in Balance. Recently, he has added filmmaker to his credits as the producer of the award-winning documentary, The Kids We Lose. We are so happy to have this opportunity to speak to you today, Dr. Green. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm just back from Australia, so I'm just a little jet lag. But <laughs> Wonderful. And what a beautiful place to visit as well. Uh, to the degree that I get to see any of the places that I go, it was a beautiful place. <laughs> uh, to were you lecturing and working there? I was lecturing there um, five different cities in 10 days. Oh, um, wow. Amazing. I did get to see some of the rainforest and some of my Hosts there were kind enough to give me a proper barbecue, so I um, I did those two things. So you were oh, well lovely. fed, <laughs> well cared for, well fed. There you go. Um, so I particularly am like beyond super excited to have you here because I have your book, The Explosive Child, um, on my desk and almost with me at all times, yeah. and I, I mean that really truly because it is it spoke to me. And I found it to be so um, powerful in its approach and its ability to really change dynamics for for my child in particular. And I think it could work for non-explosive children as well. I'd love you to just, um, if you could, you know, tell us a little bit of background on how you came to this approach and writing all these books and, and what it means to you. Well, the main thing was that a very long time ago, it became clear to me that simply rewarding good behavior and punishing maladaptive behavior was not the way to go. I saw a lot of kids who were not benefiting from that approach to things. Um, and it also became apparent that these kids had expectations that they were having difficulty meeting and that it was those unmet expectations, I call them unsolved problems, mm -hmm. that were causing all the conflict between them and their caregivers. And rewarding and punishing consequences don't solve problems either. And so um, what became increasingly clear to me was that we needed a problem-solving model. Uh, it needed to be collaborative because um, we needed the kid to be involved in the process of solving the problem and to have some ownership over the solution. And really importantly, it needed to be proactive um, because uh, the worst things that go on with these kids and their caregivers go on in the heat of the moment. Um, and the heat of the moment's a bad spot to be in. Um, yes. All the bad stuff happens in the heat of the moment. So if we can get people out of the heat of the moment, then we'd probably be in better shape. So um, collaborative and proactive solutions is born. Um, 
and uh, it's non-punitive, it's non-adversarial, it's very proactive, it's very collaborative, and um, the research that is accumulated on the model has now made it evidence-based, um, the gold standard, and um, on a just uh, just at a practical level, it seems to work really well. Yeah, I, I have found in my own home, and I have three children, that it, it does work very, very well. Um, so I think that this is a really powerful, powerful tool. And I, I, I personally cannot thank you enough. What, what I think is, strikes me is just the reward and punishment, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Um, Grace has um, two children as well. So, right, aren't we always using reward and punishment? I'm going to take away this if you don't do that. So let's talk about how we get away from that. And, and is there ever a time for that? Well, um, I might not be the best person to ask if there's ever a time for it because I don't usually see much use for it anymore. Right. Um, mostly because, um, you know, in this model, we view behavior as simply the signal, um, the fever. It's the, it's the way the kid is communicating that he's having difficulty meeting a particular expectation. That's all behavior is. Mm -hmm. What's usually getting rewarded and punished is behavior right? Um, or the failure to meet a particular expectation or success in meeting the expectation. But here's where all of that falls apart. Um, rewards and punishments don't help us caregivers understand what is getting in the way of a kid meeting an expectation. It's just something we're doing to the kid, not with him. Right. And um, once we find out you know, when you're, when you're solving a problem collaboratively and proactively, you are gathering information from the child about what's making it hard for him to meet the expectation. That's called the empathy step. Mm -hmm. And then in the second step, the defined adult concern step, the adult is putting their concern on the table and basically saying why they feel it's important that that expectation be met. Once those two pieces of information are identified, it becomes crystal clear. A reward is going to address nobody's concern. A punishment is going to address nobody's concern. And that's why people who are rewarding and punishing a lot are rewarding and punishing a lot. Right. <laughs> Once again, it's a constant cycle. Problems. That's correct. But that's the main reason why, right? Um, consequences don't solve problems. And if what's behind challenging behavior is unsolved problems, unmet expectations, then we really do need to be going about doing things differently because um, rewarding and punishing is not a problem-solving process. Right, that's true. So can you explain to our audience um, or define the term as you define it, explosive child? I know even in your book you say you don't actually love that term, um, <laughs> but for lack of a, a better term, can you define it for us? Um, well, <laughs> these days, uh, well, I've never been real keen on explosive because it leaves out kids who are implosive. Oh. And if, if behavior is communication, then all explosive child means is he's got a fever, right? Here's how he's communicating. Right. He's having difficulty meeting certain expectations. So obviously any title is going to be limited. Um, but the main thing I don't like about it is that it leaves out the implosive type, okay. right? And can you define that for us? Yeah, I mean, imploding is more related, is more anxiety, depression, pouting, sulking, uh, whining, right? So right. an inward kind of behavior. Correct. Turning, okay. turning. The mm -hmm. signal is more of an inward uh, okay. 
expression. Okay. Um, outward is things like, uh, and this might be explosive, um, is screaming, swearing, hitting, spitting, biting, kicking, throwing, right? Okay. Those, are, those are behaviors that would be more commonly associated with an explosion, right? Okay. But whether a kid is communicating that he's having difficulty meeting an expectation by imploding or exploding really doesn't matter. Right. What really matters, that's just the way the kid is communicating. That's just the fever. Mm -hmm. um, what really matters is that the kid is having difficulty meeting expectations, right? Um, and that we need to help them. The kid has what we call unsolved problems, and we need to help them solve those problems. Um, and that's the whole goal. Right. And the explosive child really doesn't tell that tale. I'm not sure that any title would. Um, there you have it. Right. Well, it tells it enough um, that, you know, I and others in my situation have certainly picked up your book. So Absolutely. in that respect, it's a great title. But I, I really understand what you're saying. And more to your point, I be um, and I, I'm sure Grace will, will concur. You know, I have like what I, what we would term, let's say, one explosive child, although he's getting to be non-explosive thanks to you. Mm -hmm. And then I have two, uh, you know, nice, well-behaved children who other times misbehave. And I feel that you can employ these techniques really across the board for children of all spectrums, right? Because kids are on a spectrum, right? They might not be explosive all the time, but they can have explosive moments. Isn't that true? No question. We all look bad sometimes. <laughs> to say the truth, that's, that's how I prefer to put it, is looking bad. I like that. Um, and what causes us to look bad is when the expectations that are being placed upon us outstrip the skills that we have to respond adaptively. That's it. It's really that simple, right? Right. And so um, we all look bad sometimes because there are times when we all have difficulty meeting certain expectations, right? Either our own or more commonly the expectations somebody else is placing on us. Um, that's when we all look bad, when we're having trouble meeting expectations. And that's kids who we might call well-behaved and that's kids who we might call ill-behaved. I would say that the ill-behaved ones are, generally speaking, probably having difficulty meeting more expectations. But the real thing that defines them is that they are communicating that they're having difficulty meeting them in ways that are just more powerful or what we might call explosive. Okay. That's very well said. So they're making themselves heard so loudly that you can't ignore them. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I'm careful about wording. Um, I don't think they're making themselves do anything. I think that um, we all have ways in which we communicate that we're having trouble meeting expectations. As an example, I tend to be a withdrawer, right? Okay. So when, when the expectations being placed upon me are greater than the skills I have to respond adaptively, I withdraw. I, what I call I get the heck out of Dodge, I recollect myself, and I re-engage, right? right? To tell you the truth, that makes me lucky because I've never been placed in timeout for withdrawing. I've never right. <laughs> been suspended from school for withdrawing. Right. I've never been paddled or hit for withdrawing, right? right? The unlucky kids are the ones who are communicating that they're having difficulty meeting expectations in ways that, unfortunately, and this is what the documentary film is about, um, do get them treated in ways that are often extremely counterproductive. And that is their great misfortune. They're not choosing it. Right. Um, it just happens to be how they communicate that they're having difficulty meeting expectations. So some of us are lucky. I'm a withdrawer. Right. 
Right. And some of us are not. Screamers and swearers tend not to be real lucky because they pay a big price for being screamers and swearers. They certainly I do. I think that's a great point that you make. Um, so can you detail, you talk in your book about plan A, plan B, plan C. Could you just give us a little overview of how that works practically? Sure. Well, plan B is where you are. Basically what I've done is I've just um, reduced life to its most basic elements in terms of how caregivers respond to unmet expectations. And I call those three ways, plan A, plan B, and plan C. Plan B is where you're solving a problem collaboratively. Right. Plan A is where you're solving a problem unilaterally. In my line of work, I recommend that people almost never use plan A because any problem that can be solved using plan A can be more productively solved using plan B. Plus, plan A is about power, and therefore plan A causes conflict and Therefore, I view plan A as unnecessary, especially if we have a better option, plan B. Right. right. Plan C is where you are setting aside a particular expectation, at least for now. Plan C is very important for kids who've been behaviorally challenging for a long time and therefore have a lot of unsolved problems that are just now being identified. Uh, and some of the kids that uh, are just now getting their unsolved problems identified, often have 30, 40, 50, 60 unsolved problems because they do tend to accumulate over time, especially when they remain unsolved. Right. We can't solve them all at once, so we're going to have to prioritize. The ones, and we're never usually working on more than three unsolved problems at a particular given point in time. Those are the ones that are you being dealt with with Plan B. The yeah. rest are being set aside for now. In other words... We are removing those expectations. Once again, not forever, not because we're giving in, not because we're giving up, mm -hmm. but because we can't solve them all at once. So we have to prioritize. Right. That's plan C. And those are the three options. Just, uh, you know, what I tell people is while there are three options in real life, in this model, we're really only using two of them, B and C. Right. Because A, you really don't want to be doing. Well, a lot of people think of A as the ultimate way to c demonstrate authority. Right. Uh, power. I um, don't think that way at all. I think that A is a good way to cause conflict. Yes. Absolutely. A is a good way for kids' concerns not to be heard. Um, a is adversarial. Yes. Um, I don't see the point. So I think the best way to communicate that you're an authority figure is plan B. Plan B, that's right. And I think a lot of our readers will have to adjust their parenting from A to B, because unfortunately, A is still quite common, isn't it? Do you find? Very much so. Um, and I think that as a society, there is a lens change that needs to take place. Um, because if you raise a kid up using power, you are training a kid that power is the best way to resolve conflict. And it's not. Well, we certainly know that over the course of history, don't we? If only uh, countries and politicians chose B so much we more do. often. World, world history would be very supportive of yes. uh, this model and the counterproductivity of being unilateral. Oh, couldn't agree more. And you know what I'm very passionate about is lives in balance. Your message is so unique. It's so powerful. Um, and it's about giving um, 
I don't want to say the word power, but it's giving giving the opportunity for children to almost express themselves, giving them the opportunity to have the is it fair to say giving the power back to the children? What would what would be a better way of saying that without using power? Because that seems to be a very damaging word to children, especially when they're going through challenges such as ADHD. Right. Well, we don't want this to be about power on either side. Right. So the preferred terms for me are agency. Agency, yes. And like voice. That. Voice. Um, kids should have a voice. Right. Why should we spend the first eight years of a kid's life saying, you have no voice, it's only our voice that matters? That's just, that's just poor training. It's bad strategy. Yeah. It certainly is. And then at 18, when they're an adult, legally saying to them, okay, well, you have a voice, but they've never been trained to use that voice for the first, I mean, 18 years. Isn't that fair? Well, and plus, if the only if the only person with power for their first eighteen years is the caregivers, yes, then I often find that once people do have agency and voice, then they overdo it because they're sort of making up for lost time. So, for for me, better to leave the word power out. Um, everybody wants to have a voice. Everybody wants to have agency. And the earlier in a kid's life you help them learn how to do that, but also listen to somebody else's voice and take somebody else's concerns into account boy think of all the think of all the opportunities for practicing that during childhood that we sort of just blow off the table because we're so caught up in our own power we are and we also notice little isms about ourselves seeing ourselves again as a child through our children things that bothered us about ourselves and then we're projecting on our child trying to take power and say no don't do this behavior because we're we're almost uh, projecting behaviors we had when we were children and seeing it again in our children instead of sympathizing and using plan b we're trying to exude power to remove those behaviors well and you know it's admirable for caregivers to not want to watch kids make the mistakes that they made yes but it's when we go overboard by trying to control outcomes that we lose a lot of our influence. You know, in raising human beings, what I talked about is the more control you try to have, the less control you have. Yes. And that, that you're a whole <laughs> so lot true. better off trying to have influence because let's face it, first of all, the kid was not a blank slate when he popped out. So he's somebody from the word go. Yeah. Um, the best you can shoot for is influence because you really want the kid to benefit from your experience, wisdom, and values. But if you try to help a kid benefit from your experience, wisdom, and values through power, the kid's not going to benefit a lot from your experience, wisdom, and values. So it's a whole lot better to engage in a process where the voices of both parties are being heard and where the solutions, we haven't really talked about this yet, where the solutions are mutually satisfactory, meaning the concerns of both parties get addressed. I just find that to be a much more productive process and a much better way to help kids become the adults of the future. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So let's talk for a minute about solutions and, yes. and actually practically, like in the moment, how do you diffuse the negative behavior while it's happening, right? Because really you're supposed to talk to the child, not in the moment, but you know, as parents, as educators, you know, that's not always possible. So how do we do it in the moment and, and what do you suggest we do? Well, I'm happy to answer the question, but I think it is 99.9% possible to be proactive. Um, Ahead of time, you mean? Absolutely. Okay. I think that the main reason that we end up in the heat of the moment 
is because we haven't taken step number one of this model, which is to identify, and we have an instrument on the Lives in the Balance website called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems that's primary goal is to help us identify all of the expectations that a kid is having difficulty reliably meeting. And those are the very expectations that we get into conflict with kids about and that we find ourselves in the heat of the moment dealing with. But once you have your list of unmet expectations and once you prioritize, um, uh, looking bad, bad moments are highly predictable and can be dealt with proactively. So this is a really important first step. The reason we find ourselves in the heat of the moment, wondering what you do in the heat of the moment and how you respond to behavior, the signal in the heat of the moment is because we haven't yet identified all of the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting, all of those problems which we could be busy solving proactively if only we had identified them ahead of time. So now I'll answer the question. Okay. What, do you, yes. what, do you, what do you do in the heat of the moment? You defuse, deescalate, and keep everybody safe. And that's the advice of every crisis management program. Defuse, deescalate, keep everybody safe. Um, but you are defusing, deescalating, and keeping everybody safe almost never when you are identifying unsolved problems proactively and solving them proactively. Is it good to know what to do in the heat of the moment? Absolutely. Is it better not to find yourself in the heat of the moment in the first place? For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. Everything in this model is geared toward helping caregivers be proactive, which I think can be achieved 99.9% .9 of the time, which sounds unrealistic to people who've not yet figured out what the list of unsolved problems is, but it becomes extremely plausible once you have that list. No, I, I actually agree with you. And I, like I said, I, I walk around with your book. So I very much believe that you are right. Um, I think that it, it's a challenge, right? It just is, it seems easier to reward and punish. In actuality, and I think you're saying this, is it's not easier. It's just short-term easier. But in the long-term, you're not really getting um, and what you need as, as a parent. And you're certainly not giving your child what they need. And to that end, I'd like to just address um, about the school situations, because I find that reward and punishment is such a tool that is used so frequently in school. And I think that this really needs to replace it. So how is this being incorporated? Lots and lots of schools that have used Lost at School as a book study. That's great. Um, and at the very least have changed their lenses about what behaviorally challenging students are about. Um, it takes a lot longer to change practices. There are a lot of practices in schools that are very unilateral and a lot of school structures are oriented toward being very heat of the moment. But proof that we are seeing a shift is not only that a lot of uh, schools have used Lost at School as a book study, and to the degree that I'm aware of this, are trying to change their disciplinary practices, but also the fact that the news media is starting to pay much more attention, and part of this is due to the, the documentary, uh, The Kids We Lose. Right. Um, but we are now, we are now seeing um, states take their rates of restraint and seclusion more seriously. 
we are seeing states, some of them anyways, trying to reduce the number of kids that are being paddled at school, which many people cannot believe still goes on here in the year 2019. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm shocked to hear that. In I the United to. States of America, but it literally is over 100,000 times a year oh my in goodness. 19 different states still. Uh, there are schools that are trying to reduce rates of out-of-school suspension, school systems that are trying to reduce expulsions. Right. I think that the data are so clear right. that those strategies are counterproductive. Um, I think that um, we are moving in the right direction. The pace of change tends to be slow, um, right. but we're moving in the right direction. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Absolutely. And the more people who follow what is what I would consider a movement across the United States and across the globe, the more we listen to this, the change comes with the parents, the caregivers, the teachers and the institutions, rather than forcing change or power on children. So to our audience, I think it's a great message. The change begins with you. And we will have all of your books uh, linked in our show notes for our audience. That's fantastic. Even more importantly, link to the Lives in the Balance website. Absolutely. There is just a boatload of free resources on that website. Nothing is for sale on that website. Yes, it's amazing. So would that be a good starting place for any parent or just educator lost. Yeah. To, to begin? Would you say that would be a good place to start? I would get on the Lives in the Balance website. I would go to the CPS resources section in the upper nav bar. Okay. And go to, if you're a parent, go to the parents and families section. If you are an educator, go to the schools, student, uh, schools, school, teachers and schools, educators and schools section. And what you'll find in that section um, is a walking tour. And it's filled, it's, it's sort of a very nice tour of the model that we've been talking about briefly here, but it's, it's complemented by all kinds of streaming video and audio programming. Um, I would say that's the place to start. And you know what? Some people don't even need to buy a book once they've taken the tour. Oh, I love that. And you know what else? Schools can also go to the Compassionate Communities section and you could just enter your name and address below and that will show your commitment to the values of Compassionate Communities, which I think just says uh, across the United States, hey, we've signed up and we're changing the way we're thinking and educating your children. The other place if people want to get involved is the advocacy section where people can sign up to be what we call an advocator. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the people who are really helping us create change um, from the trenches. Absolutely. And then there's also a link to the kids we lose, I believe. There's a link to the website for the kids we lose. Um, it will soon be in distribution. Right now it is airing on streaming on main public television. So if people do a web search for the kids we lose and add Maine, M-A-I-N-E, public, they can watch it online. Well, readers are definitely spoiled with the vast amount of information and advocacy that you have on this site. Um, I can't think of a better resource and a great way to start because I can understand how parents in uh, the thick of it all can feel so lost and their children are suffering as well. So this is the perfect place to start on your journey. Yes, it really takes you from a place of alienation to a place where you can come together and really have useful, realistic, powerful techniques to really make a change in your child's life. So we thank you so much for coming on. This has been 
informative and beyond and it was really our pleasure to have you and we're going to keep talking about this because i think it's such a great topic thanks for so, having me all right thank, thank you, you. So much. and thank you to our audience for listening we hope to have you again bye for now bye for now